This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 566, Comic Talk Spotlight, Iron Man by Joe Quesada. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 566. It's our Comic Talk Spotlight on Iron Man by Joe Quesada. Uh, this is a, basically a sequel episode to episode 506 that came out back in September, where I talked about Iron Man by Kurt Busiek and Sean Chen with my co-host, Tim Riley, who is joining me again for this episode. Uh, so you can sit back and enjoy this episode as we, uh, we go pretty deep on this uh, on this volume. It's interesting. I think we actually spent more time talking about this uh, run of issues than uh, the prior 25 issues. Uh, but there, there's a lot to kind of hunker into here and some interesting themes and some great artwork by Sean Chen and, and uh, Aletha Martinez. Uh, you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for listening to Comic Shenanigans, and without further ado, let's get right into the conversation between myself and Tim Riley. Tim, welcome back. I'm glad to be here. So this is our uh, our our long-awaited uh, follow-up to our last uh, conversation about Iron Man. Exactly. Everyone's probably tired of hearing from Steve Englehart and all those guys. They wanted me back on the show, so I'm Ab- glad to help out with that. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, last time we talked, obviously, about uh, the Heroes Return version of Iron Man, and it had been your kind of first time reading it because you had bought the omnibus, and I, as we were going through that, I kept talking up the uh, Iron Man by Joe Quesada trade, and so you picked it up, and now you've read it freshly, and you're ready to dissect it, right? Exactly. Now, going into it, besides what I had said, did you know anything about what you were going to get here, or were there any spoilers that you already knew? Uh, I had some vague idea that his armor was going to come alive, but other than that, I really didn't know anything else. And that really didn't even play out how I expected it to, so I was pretty much surprised. That's good. Okay, well, I guess we should jump right in. So um, we're both reading, I'm guessing, by the, from the uh, Iron Man by Joe Quesada trade paperback, right? Yeah, that's what I've got. So I, I realized today that I think as of right now, I own uh, most of these stories in, I want to say, five different formats. Um, or maybe four. Maybe four. Maybe I'm wrong, because I, I own the original singles. I haven't sold them yet. I still have... The mask, I think it was called the Mask and the Iron Man trade, which is the first collected edition they ever did of these issues. And it was really just the the first storyline, not the, the second one with the Sons of Yinsen. Um, then I have this, this trade. And then just yesterday, uh, Marvel had one of their crazy 99 cent trade sales. So I bought it again. <laughs> just couldn't get enough. Yeah, those sales have been, those sales have been pretty ridiculous lately. Well, they were doing the ones where uh, they, you know, every day, every week, there was like two days of the week where basically the trades of that week were only a dollar. And then yesterday they had hundreds on sale. I don't know what was going on. And I was just, I had to rein myself in. I bought, I still bought like 20 of them. But I was just like, oh my God, like I'm going to go crazy. I have to buy all this stuff, which I don't actually have to buy, but I just couldn't help myself. Well, I saw today at C2E2, they asked C.B. Cebulski about it, and he basically said Amazon prices things where they want, and we have nothing to do with it, and kind of shrugged his shoulders at it. That's good for the comic collector. Yeah, well, I, it's good for the reader, right? Like, I mean, at the end of the day, they're pumping, you know, all this, especially when it's old content, like, the newer stuff I can understand people being more upset about because, you know, the, the shops aren't getting, you know, if the trade just came out yesterday, and it's already up for a dollar, or there was a what was it, the Legion Quest hardcover was supposed to come out, didn't end up coming out, but it was out digitally yesterday for a dollar, but the hardcover is, I think, like, what, 40, 50, 60 bucks? That's crazy, but if it's something that, like, is old material, 
It, you know, it hasn't, you know, no one's picking that up. They're not, re, you know, newly reprinting it, and they just happen to be putting on a dollar sale. That's great for everybody. Because that's, that's, the, sorry, go ahead. I say, especially when a lot of that's already on Marvel Unlimited. Oh, exactly. So, it's inter- it's interesting, but yeah, so I, now that I own this content four times, and I, uh, I'll probably buy it again if they come out with something better. So do you have the issues that are after this? Because I know Casada wrote three more issues after this, but they're not included in this trade. Uh, then, yes. You know, I actually don't remember. Now that I think about them, I can't even remember them. But, yeah, I, I, I think I stayed on until I think just after issue 50. I think Mike Grell came on. The artwork kind of changed a little, and I wasn't as big a fan. So I think I dropped off right around then. But, uh, yeah, I definitely have those issues. I should pull them up. It's interesting, actually, reading the trade. I realized that maybe I've never read Iron Man a half before. Like, I I feel like maybe I somehow missed it. Well, it's be easy, too. I know there's usually those things where you had to buy Wizard and then mail in some money with a form, and I never had any of those at this time. So unless they're in these books, I've never read them. Well, it's, it's interesting, though, because this is... I think they only did this with a few, but I could be completely wrong, and I hope someone corrects me, um, where they did a few half issues, which are pretty integral to the story. Like... There's a lot that goes on in the half issue that starts off this volume that I would say is actually pretty important and not just an extraneous issue that you shouldn't read. Um, Slingers had the same thing where they had a zero issue, which actually has one of the characters die, which is pretty important for the series starts. And so if you didn't read that zero issue, you're actually missing something huge. Or And then the same thing is, could be said of this half issue. It's not nearly as monumental, but it introduces the idea of, of skin. It in, introduces the sins of sons of Yunsen vaguely. Like, it definitely brings in these elements, and then you just go back to the main book and you read that story. Yeah, I think you're right. If you missed it, you could get by, but there's definitely, it's it's a good prelude to start the book because it is introducing all those things you mentioned. And it'll reintroduce them later on, but it, it, you're... Definitely, it's better to have read this than not read this. It's not simply throwaway material. Now, the the only thing I will say about it is that considering that, again, it's kind of a weird place where it introduces new stuff, but then it's not part of the regular kind of ongoing, is that you have beats in here with uh, Romiko and with Tony, and then it feels like in the next issue, like this issue didn't happen. Like if... See, I feel like throughout this entire book, they kind of just replay the Rumiko Tony thing back again and again and again, and it never really gets anywhere. No, but I well, yeah, I guess there are. There's definitely a lot of that. So let's go through. The, let's talk about this this half issue, though. So sure. I mean, you have Rumiko, you have Tony, kind of having an issue with her thinking that Tony's kind of a wimp, which I don't remember really being something that was that expanded upon in the Heroes Return stuff. No, yeah, it is. It's, it's sort of she all of a sudden she just. I mean, it makes sense her complaint, but it's not very common to come up. No, and it's it's interesting too because you have to kind of do a mind a mental mind check and be like, oh yeah, no one knows who Tony is at this point. Like, I, like obviously, I, I at the time that that was just the way it was, but it's hard to go back to stuff where there is still secret identities because it just it just feels almost awkward now, even though that was the way it was for like thirty five years for this character. It does. It's it comes up more later in the book. They make such a big deal out of his secret identity, but for the last I don't know fifteen years, it's been like, well accepted. Everyone knows he's Iron Man, and it's not like a threat to his friends and family. But it's played very differently in this book. Yeah, well, it's actually it's almost played more to like a Spider Man degree. 
It definitely is. Yeah, the whole I have to keep it secret because my friends and family will suffer. It's definitely exactly that way. And even at times his his getting out of it feels very Peter Parker-ish. Like, oh, I gotta go. <laughs> Something's <laughs> happening. Like, it's... Um, one thing, it's weird that they introduce a villain here, this, well, kind of, Sons of Yinsen, but they don't really elaborate on it. Like, you'd think for a half issue, you'd maybe get something a little bit more done in one, in terms of being kind of wrapped up a little bit more neatly. Instead, it's like, here's this thing, here's this giant dragon, oh, it's all these old armors, they're gone now. What? Yeah, and then it doesn't really come back up again until much later in the book. Yeah, it, it's a it's weird placement, but I guess Joe knew where he was going to go. But like again, that's that's seeding things out pretty far. Yeah, it seemed like he had the the two or three plots he was interested in. He knew those plots from the beginning. So we have Tony. We have him. You know, kind of trying to uh, convince Romiko that I guess they're worth having a relationship with him and. They they have a very weird interplay, which it doesn't feel as much like Tony usually does. Um, she you know kind of takes him on a on a um, on a trip. Which now this is I found very this took me out of the story a lot. Um, seeing the name of the company, I don't know if this did the same for you. Askewtronics. Yeah, did that have any meaning for you? It's the Kevin Smith stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> it took me out of it a lot because I remembered like this time frame. Him and Kevin were buddies. Oh, view askew the fact that the professor is Professor Jennifer Smith, his you know Kevin's wife. I'm like, really, guys? Yeah, this is back when they were real, real tight. So it's not surprising to see it, but it is ve- it's it's very on the nose. It's not subtle at all. No, I mean, I guess if you didn't know, but like, yeah, it just felt very like okay. Yeah, I get what you guys are going for. Um, actually, and I should mention before we get too far into the discussion of the issue, um, this is, I guess, the first time that uh, Aletha Martinez has actually done the art on Iron Man, because uh, she comes on the book later as a regular artist for a while, but uh, this is kind of the first, kind of her foray into Iron Man, which actually makes me curious, no, I'm, I'm just trying to think, because they mentioned this half issue, it had to have been published first, it's just curious that, you know, did they know that she was going to be taking over from Sean Chen that far in advance? Like, they, they couldn't have known, right? Like... Seems pretty far uh, to advance. Been treated like, it may have been treated sort of like a tryout issue. Like, they needed someone to draw the half issue, they gave it to her, it worked out well, so then they slotted her in when they needed someone else. Yeah, okay, you know, I could buy that. So we have Tony learning about a new technology. Now, reading the half issue uh, made me realize that I didn't realize how early the skin concept was brought in, because... I remember that. I, f- I feel like that was really brought in in the, like, the mid-40s for Iron Man, uh, where he got kind of... There was a weird kind of armor period where he was going through a lot of different types, and uh, in and then the skin armor was kind of the new prototype armor he was going to use. I didn't realize that they had brought in that concept so much earlier. Uh, so that was kind of interesting for me, going back and reading it in hindsight. Yeah, because it doesn't play a massive role at any point really in this book, does it? No, not at all. Yeah, it comes up one more, two more times, but it never is, has a really is plot relevant. No, but I guess it's kind of nice that you know that they, again they were kind of seeding ideas for for first of all something for Tony to be busy with and something to be going on, and then eventually you know future writers were able to kind of pull it together. That's kind of nice. I mean, uh, isn't that kind of how comics used to work before the trade era? You know, people would seed ideas and then you either have to work with them or not, and more often than not, people did. I do like that. I, I, I'm. I wish there was more of, I understand why it doesn't happen, I wish there was more of, you know, picking up where the last guy left off, rather than, well, I'm going to sort of restart it when I'm on. 
I guess it's it's more difficult too because how how often at Marvel does a new writer mean a new issue like a new number one like mm-hmm. when you have, almost when every time well exactly when you're starting with a new number one your marketing it's it's going to be difficult if you're just picking up the you know the next issue from the last person it's easier to sell it as this is your your take and I guess as a writer that's probably really freeing in a lot of ways because you kind of get to do your own thing without having to pick up the baton. But I guess it also puts a lot of uh, stress on a, a writer to leave a book or how they end a, a volume because they have to kind of put the pieces back into place, you know, to a degree. Whereas when you're not doing that, there's no implication. Like you, people can either choose a new writer jumping on as a jumping on point or or not. Whereas a new issue, a new issue one, it's a lot harder to not be like, well, this should be a new thing I should be able to jump into. Exactly. I think you nailed that. Um, it'd be nice to see more of this, but it's completely understandable why you don't see it anymore. What do you think of this fight between Iron Man and all the different Iron Man armors? Uh, it's all right. It, it's so rushed in this. I mean, it's over in maybe four or five pages. There's just not a lot of space for it in this half issue. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and really, it just shows them all basically wearing the old buckets, right? Like... Yeah, it's the it's the yeah, it's the almost very original one, and uh, it, it does make me laugh because it's it's got it, it feels like a very very old school comic. Like his solution is to you know basically get them all into one big ball and fly them into space. Like really? Well, then he has to pull the oh, Iron Man saved me. I'm not Iron Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I do like that they're like oh, this is. You know, I've never tried this before. I have to like turn an Iron Man as it's saving me, and I'm like, well, that's that's kind of cute. But it's it, again, it's one of those kind of hackneyed devices of the era. I mean, I wonder how Iron Man writers had to bash their head against the wall to come up with ways to get him away, and like, how do I, you know, keep this interesting? How do I get him into being Iron Man? How to, you know, it's probably easier as technology got better, where people could buy that this was happening. Whereas I'm sure in the in the 70s, they'd be like, really, the armor's just going to attach itself to his body? That's not realistic. Yeah, you're right. Now it'd be, it'd be much more cumbersome to pull these sort of things off with the less technological armor. Now that it's so fancy, it'd be much easier to well, exactly. it's you know, like, just pretend like it's not me. Yeah, it's bleeding edge tech. It just bleeds out of his body. Like it's not that difficult, <laughs> right? Like it, to keep your secret identity would be a lot easier now. I mean, I remember in Heroes Reborn, there's this shot where Iron Man walks out. Oh, sorry, Tony Stark. Uh, he doesn't want anyone to know who he is, but he still has like the chest plate attached to him. But he's got like a giant bathrobe on top of it, and he goes out to like meet with Mister Fantastic or something. And I'm like, really? Like no one's gonna notice? Like you're not just hanging out at you know in a spa. Like you've got a, a giant Iron Man chest plate attached to you that you need to live right now. Like that's that that's come on, come on, guys. It was not the greatest. Well, you'd imagine too in this world there would be all kinds of conspiracy theorists claiming that Tony Stark was Iron Man all the time and looking for evidence for it. <laughs> that's very true. And what do you think of uh, Jocasta as the as the hot psychiatrist? <laughs> So I like the concept of her as psychiatrist, but this is way over the top. Yeah, but I mean, they, obviously it's Tony's doing it, and even she says she's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's true. Which is kind of weird. Like that's that. Like, I don't think that would play as well today. No, I would say you would not. This would not have the same response. I think if you published this in 2018. No, not at all. So let's move into really where the, the real story starts. So we've got Iron Man 26 is where uh, Crusader really kind of takes the reins of the main ongoing book. He gets to work with uh, Sean Chen, who does 
Oh, an amazing job. I, I love Sean Chen's art in Iron Man so much. It is excellent work. It's I, I know it, it's the only good thing about him leaving about halfway through this is he jumps over to Wolverine where he also does some really great work. Oh yeah, but I guess that's the sequence, right? Yeah, that that is yeah, no, you're right. That's some amazing stuff too. So what I like about this, so when we started off, um, Quesada kind of layers his the first couple pages in each issue with the same kind of um, internal dialogue. And I kind of like how he gets in Iron Man's head and tries to kind of uh, draw focus on what kind of the, the main brunt of the story is about. So even that first page with the kind of the nine-panel grid, it really actually conveys a lot to the reader, um, just what's going on. And then that first shot of Tony kind of looking sullen, broken nose, you know, nursing, is it, is it a drink of alcohol or is it not? It really says a lot about where this character is and kind of makes you wonder what's going on and in a, in a great way. Yeah. I like this recurring. They have the, it's the, every first page of this first arc is that same nine panel grid with the same, um, narrative boxes. I think it works really well just to frame everything consistently. And really like kind of, yeah, it, it drives, drives home a lot of elements of the story. Now the, this first issue is kind of interesting because you have a more of Tony and Romico kind of dealing with their relationship. You have, um, Tony, you know, kind of showing off skin, putting it on a on a basketball, which is kind of a weird sequence. Yeah, yeah. Tony gets jealous all of a sudden and launches it at him. And yeah, and then yeah, Ramiko gets pissed off at him and like throws it at him, and he's able to like divert it. Like it felt like a very odd sequence, and even the the conversation between Ramiko and Tony felt kind of weirdly different from the half issue, like almost like they're two different couples. Yeah, I read some interviews where Casada was saying he liked Ramiko, but throughout the book, it it just kind of it's not consistent. It just jumps back and forth. It never really goes anywhere new. Like when the book starts, when the book ends, it's sort of in a similar place. That's true. And at times, I almost feel like she she almost feel like a very not bipolar, but she kind of goes from back and forth to like various extremes. Like even in the first couple issues here, she's having a good time and she's super annoyed, having a good time, super annoyed. Like it's just what's going on. Yeah. It's just, it's, you're, she's either a very bipolar person or just being written inconsistently. Um, but then when we do have Tony, you know, decide to go, you know, go get into his armor. I love the sequence of him realizing that she loved him and it's what a 12 panel grid. 16. 16, sorry. And yeah. like, there's a lot going on, but I think it actually worked really well to kind of show, first of all, the countdown of the time, him realizing this, him getting the armor, which is kind of funny that all the different sequences of the armor getting to him. Um, but I thought it was a, a really effective panel layout, and it really makes you excited for him to be Iron Man, like to be in the armor. Like you could almost feel like him being Tony is bottled up and you have this almost bottled up page of so much going on. And the minute he's in the Iron Man armor, it's one splash, almost like that's when he's free. Like when he's Tony, he's boxed in. When he's, when he's Iron Man, he's free again. And they frame that splash to make him look so powerful all of a sudden that once he's in that armor, he is Iron Man and all that other stuff is sort of set aside because now he's this powerful figure. And it works, too, as a counterpoint to a few pages earlier when he's talking about how much he loves the armor and the rumble of the jets and everything, and then you realize he's not actually in the armor. And now, finally, he is. And so by by Joe kind of kind of writing about how that feels and how freeing it can be and how this didn't end up getting to be the day that he got to do that, then finally, again, he's finally able to step free of everything that Tony's dealing with and just be Iron Man, fly into the air, be powerful, be in the Iron Man armor. It's a really... 
satisfying shot from a from a reader's perspective. It is, and it works well right until S and M Whiplash shows up. This <laughs> costume just—it's ridiculous. Like, why does he have a zipper over his mouth? Like, that's. <laughs> It's, uh, I don't know who came up with it, but actually, I guess it was probably Chen because wasn't he wearing this the last time he showed up in so. Iron Man? So, I mean, he was, it was the same type of thing. Well, here's the question though is it better to be like this with this weird SM gear or to be the, um, what was he called in the Iron Man animated series? Was it Backlash or was it still Whiplash? I can't remember. But he was, I'm not on, sure. I haven't seen. He, he was on that and he looked ridiculous. Um, so I don't know what, what's worse, to be honest. Yeah, the only whiplash I really know well at all is just the one from Iron Man 2, which I don't think is really representative of the comic book character. No. The the classic version, which I guess is called Whiplash. Now, it was still the same character. He had a... Uh, I can't even picture it in my head. He had like, I think he had like an open chest, like V, and he had like a weird plume on his, ha- on his hat or on, like on his mask. Uh, from what I remember, he looked ridiculous. So I, in some ways, this might actually be a little bit better. <laughs> But it's still like a, a weird look. But I do like their fight and the fact that, you know, for the most part, Iron Man's not taking him that seriously at the beginning, but he's rattled already because he's got other stuff on his mind. And then it kind of allows um, a Whiplash to get the, the better of him in a way that he normally wouldn't. And then they have a kind of a cool kind of midair sequence where there's an explosion, Whiplash gets thrown into the water, but uh, Iron Man isn't quite so lucky and he just kind of hits the ground. And I'm actually surprised that they didn't play up more of of Iron Man actually hitting the ground because it's, it's a, it's almost, it's, it's a big moment, right? Like you have a guy collapsing in his Iron Man armor. That should be kind of a bigger splash of showing what that looks like. They kind of take care of it really simply here, which I'm actually surprised about. Yeah. It's very understated. It's this huge faraway shot where you just have a sound effect of him hitting and then it just cuts to him on the ground. You don't really ever see the impact no and you think and actually from the shot of him going down the smoke and everything makes it look like it's much bigger but it's such a small little crater on the ground which i guess is true of what would actually happen yeah but it's it's not they don't play it for the impressive i guess it, it might be hard to play it too strongly and still have you believe he's alive but maybe that's the motivation but it's not i mean it's two panels on a seven panel page mm-hmm and then what's interesting as well is that you, you don't see anything else. You flip right to, you know, him coming to and Romiko running into a room that already has Pepper Happy and uh, Rhodes. And she's pissed off that he, he didn't tell her. And he's like, what? Tell you what? And uh, right on the, uh, what is it, the Miami Harbinger. That's a scary name for a paper. Um, <laughs> it's revealed that Tony Stark is Iron Man, which is an awesome reveal. Like, just a great last page. It was. I was... Did not see that happening in this volume, and of course we'll see later on that doesn't really actually happen, but it was a good, I mean, it makes sense, you crash land into the middle of a place like that, people are going to naturally sort of peek underneath the helmet. (laughs) And then we have, uh, actually I should say, before we get past issue 26, we also have that moment where it's the, uh, help me Tony, I'm dying. Uh, That's right. And it's in, the, it's in the familiar Iron Man text bubble, and so I, and but the internal narration is who who said that, so that's which is the first inclination that something weird's happening. And then, and then, it is, it's very subtle in this first issue; just a few lines of dialogue in one box, and that's all you get. Yeah, which again, that's pretty smart writing and plotting. Uh, issue twenty-seven, but uh, I I love this cover. It's stark white. 
Um, and then you just have uh, an Iron Man, and then you have some booze. It looks like he's either thrown it away or it's rolled away after he's been drinking. Um, extremely effective. I love the use of the white space. Uh, it really draws your eye, and uh, yeah, I've always loved the color, and the, the colors on the cover are just amazing. Yeah, I just imagine this, you know, on the rack, this would really stand out with the, like, if you were looking at a bunch of comics on a shelf, this one would jump out at you. Yeah, well, because it's a very effective use of that white space. Like, usually they try to try cram in so much color and bombast, but here, uh, not at all. Mm-hmm. And then, uh... Yeah, it's... Well, go ahead. I was saying, yeah, it's, it's great looking. So next up we have so we have issue twenty seven. So the first real uh, glimpse that something is going on is uh, the uh, the doctor is AI Keyhole MD, <laughs> which, I, which I love. I also like that, um, um, and I don't know why he decided to throw this in that the the artist uh, sort of the the writer of the article in uh, showing off that uh, Tony Stark is Iron Man is by Frank Thierry. That's a nice oh, little. Where touch. is this? Oh, on the yeah. first page, I just like that little touch. I'm like, they could have used anyone's name. It's Frank Thierry's name, like an actual writer who was about to write Iron Man with, uh, sorry, not Iron Man, uh, Wolverine with Sean Chen. So I'm just wondering if that was a connection or not. Yeah, I didn't notice that until you pointed it out. But I know they're really good friends. Hmm. So, uh, what, what do you think of this issue? Why don't you walk us through this one? Well, what, what I thought was interesting here. We mentioned this before, but. You know, it's the most of the issue is going through the consequences of people finding out he's Iron Man. You know, the Avengers kick him out of the Avengers. His friends are in danger, and like you mentioned before, it's kind of weird because today it's just well accepted that everyone knows he's Iron Man and his friends don't live in fear, and he's a leader of the Avengers. So this entire plot line is—it's interesting. It's a very good issue, but it stands out in how unusual it is compared to modern continuity. Mm-hmm. That's true. It does stand out. We have more of you know him talking to Jocasta. It is a fast-paced issue, and I guess the minute it goes that fast, you start to know that something's not right, and maybe there will be some pullback. I mean, especially once you have Tony drinking, like that's a pretty big moment. Um, but I, I feel like the art really sold it. Like that shot of Tony just looking at the liquor bottles and just the look in his eyes—that's a haunting, haunting look of a man who's just lost it. It is. And then the very next panel, you have him drinking, watching the Avengers kick him out. By the next page, Miss Marvel's there and he's fighting. Then the Mandarin's there. It's very, there's so many things happening so fast that you begin to think, there's no way you cover this much ground, this many big moments in five pages. Well, especially when you have everyone related to him dying. Yep, <laughs> just off panel, just as a lot of dialogue. Which, I mean, a lot of them were, you know, just, you know, side characters. So you could have, they could have done that if they wanted to. I mean, uh, like Morgan Stark, not a character anyone needed. Um, was this Chris Deegan, Joanna Navina? Like, these are all characters he's connected to with, except, I guess, except for Bethany Cabe. And I guess Sunset Bane, like, they're not really that important that anyone would be that upset about them. Or, or I guess then they killed off Pepper Potts, too. I guess that's the moment. That's when you know something's not right here. Yeah, that, that'd be a very big off-panel death. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, actually, before we go too far on the issue, I do like um, his, what does it call it, virtual video visor. Looks a lot like um, the PlayStation virtual reality visor, or any virtual reality visor now. Yeah, he was just, uh, he was ahead of the curve. He's Tony Stark, he's a futurist. You know, he had PlayStation 4 back in 98. 
Um, what do you think of the the, uh, the way that the Mandarin is written here? Uh, not written, the way that he's portrayed here. It's interesting that they went with this Mandarin design. Well, I like how they did it because during it, Tony realizes, like, wait, this isn't the Mandarin anymore. And that's his first clue that sort of something's not right about what's going on here because this is... This isn't right. This is wrong. This is off. This isn't the Mandarin. No. I, I do like it's kind of a sad moment when, when he does bust in and Tony's just on the ground cradling his alcohol and he's like, in a minute, okay? Like, <laughs> he just, like he just can't be bothered. Like, he's at such a low ebb that getting up the fight uh, Mandarin is just too much. And then you have Mandarin getting him dressed and, like, he's, like, you know, burping while he's in, like, he's in no position. It was really... It's hard to watch the character, even if he's just thinking about it, even if it's just a dream. It's still very hard to read. Like, it's 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 hard to see your hero brought this low. Yeah, I mean, it's... Especially when you just come off the preceding issues where he's been trying to help Ms. Marvel and been talking about the dangers of being a superhero while inebriated. For sure. And then... When now he, he's doing exactly that. When he does wake up, like... It, again, like I, I love the issue because yeah, you get to run through all of Tony's old worst fears, and now suddenly he does wake up. He's you know that kid is trying to lift up his faceplate, which he only offers him ten bucks, and he's like five grand deal. Like that's a the shrewd negotiator for both of them. Like come on, guys. I don't understand why Tony wouldn't just lift it up himself and save himself five grand. Well, he might also think that this kid's going to get fried. Like I don't want to be the one to do this. That's a good point. <laughs> like, he's an Avenger. You don't know what's going on with his faceplate. Like, that could be dangerous. But yeah, no, it's it's very cool. And then just having Tony fly into the air and trying to talk to this voice, and he's just like, who are you? And it's just like, I am Iron Man. I love that shot when he says, I am Iron Man. First of all, obviously the words, I am Iron Man, mean a lot more or a different thing after 2008 because it was how, obviously, they ended the, uh, the first Iron Man movie. But even here, the, just the art where Tony's like, what? It's a really good visual representation of I'm so confused. Yeah, it really is. Um, and he should be confused because Jocasta's explanation for why this happened is hilarious. Well, doesn't it doesn't it talk about Y2K? Isn't that in there? <laughs> yep. It's, it's a combination of him having downloaded Jocasta through his system, plus Y2K, plus <laughs> lightning having struck the armor. Apparently those three things combined can create life. I mean, I light, if lightning can help someone go back in time and back to the future, why not? <laughs> like, weirder things have happened in the Marvel Universe, right? I suppose, but it just goes back to that time when Y2K was just thought, it can do anything. Yep. It's whatever you want, that's what it does. <laughs> I um, I also like the reveal that, that he suffered a heart attack as well. Like, that's, again, the idea that they hadn't really played up his any real physical ailments in a while in the Iron Man books. The, well, I guess except for, obviously, the Iron Man... The armor was killing him for a little while at the beginning of Hero's Return, but uh, besides, but that was kind of self-inflicted, but otherwise he hadn't really had anything going on like, you know, his prior... Uh, you know, he'd been per, um, paralyzed in the past. Obviously, he'd had heart issues in the past. So this was kind of a nice way of kind of bringing that back, that there was a little bit more physical danger that he had to worry about besides supervillains and addiction, but he also had physical frailties, and they kind of brought that in by showing that he actually did suffer a heart attack, which I thought was, again, one hell of a last page. Quesada knows how to leave you. It is. It seems like some writers really like that aspect of Iron Man, where he does have this physical ailment to go along with being Iron Man and other ones, other writers have almost no interest in it because it comes and goes and comes and goes. 
So issue, I guess where we're up to, issue 28. Now now we have 28. the the, uh, the shifting creative teams. As Sean Chen does the first 11 pages, and then uh, Martinez does the, uh, the following 11 pages. Uh, we continue to have some questionable outfits for Jocasta. <laughs> Although they're getting, I, I guess because she's not sitting, they don't seem as bad. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely an improvement. It's not quite the um, extreme thing it was, especially in that half issue. Yeah, no, it was a lot worse there. And I, I like the shots, again, up here where it's Iron Man, uh, Tony kind of looking at the Iron Man armor and almost kind of being scared of it. And again, it goes to, you really believe this you know, kind of fear of the unknown because he just said how much he loved the armor before, and now he's... Now there's something that he doesn't understand, something that he wasn't responsible for, and now he's scared. And it means more because you know how much he loves the armor. Exactly. He's very thrown off by this because it's... Because does a really good job of establishing that it's not a simple thing of, like, let's throw it in the trash compactor and get rid of it because it does... He does a job of making it feel like it's a living thing, and you have to sort of think through the ramifications of what you're going to do with this thing that's very dangerous. Well, absolutely. And, like, they have an interesting discussion because, you know, the, the armor just wants to live, and it's really hard for, you know, Tony's really worried about that, which it's interesting that we haven't really seen a lot of Tony dealing with AI before this. Because, I mean, I mean, I guess you've, he's dealt with, obviously, Ultron, which is an artificial intelligence, uh, Jocasta, Vision, but, like, not in such a, a personal, intimate way. Like, in, And it's always kind of kind of been robots which is kind of interesting that he's so against this AI. Like, he knows a bunch of AIs. He talks to one all the time. But something about his armor being sentient throws him off. That is true. He knows Vision, he knows Jocasta, but this bothers him. What was interesting here to me was, so when I, I, like I said, mentioned in the beginning, I had sort of an inkling that his armor was going to come alive. But I sort of figured it would be one of these... His armor comes alive, his armor's evil, he has to stop it. And at no point is his armor particularly evil. He disagrees with his armor sometimes, but none of the actions are unequivocally evil actions. It's not a villainous armor. That's true. And uh, that kind of bears out at the very end as well, right? Like, it, the vil- it's, not a, it's not an actual villain. It's, I mean, it, it, it's, it, a lot of it's based on Tony, and it's just trying to... Gonna kind of take Tony's goals and and just implement the ends and not really worrying about the means, which is interesting too because you know there were times where Tony and and Cap would come you know up against each other with the same type of you know kind of issues where you know they they'd have a fundamental stance where they wanted the same outcome but they just weren't willing to take the same sacrifices or the same shortcuts in order to do it. Mm-hmm. There's a good line from the armor in here where after he's beat up Whiplash, he says, "You were just protecting innocent people, doing Avengers business." Yeah. I guess he views it. Everything he did was perfectly legitimate. It was the right thing to do. It was the heroic Avengers thing to do. Mm. Although he then says, "What's wrong with Whiplash, Tony? I'm shaking him, but he won't wake up." Uh, I okay. Well, I remember when I first read that. I first of all, I loved it because it was so dark. Like, like this isn't something I was used to seeing in a comic book. Like. Again, this is late 90s, but, like, to this degree that, you know, he's in the armor. He's he's there. He's a passenger <clears throat> as Whiplash is murdered. It's kind of crazy. Like, it is. He yells, you you killed him. What's wrong? Oh, so this is death? Oh, well. Yeah, like, it's it, it's haunting. Like, and again, just dropping the body into the water. Like, it's it's horrifying. And 
Quesada, to make you feel worse about it, does have Scarlatti talk about his son. I'm just doing this to get my son back. And then he's just murdered. It is. That's a good moment, yeah, where you can see Tony Stark's perspective of, like, why you don't just kill the villain. Mm-hmm. Well, and even just, like, when Iron Man basically almost slaps him to death, which is almost funny, but not. Like he's not even. Yeah, punch- I can't imagine the pain of that. Yeah, but like he's not even punching him; he's just slapping him, and you see the teeth like falling out of his face. Like, and I, I got to say, like the artist—I guess it's Martinez at this point—does an amazing job of showing just how crippled his face is now. Like, it's again, it's horrifying. Like, you you really get a sense in the art that the bones are breaking. Like sometimes, you know, we see a lot of superhero battles where you don't always see that the physical ramifications of it are really being shown. Like Spider-Man punches Doc Ock; he never really looks that banged up. Uh, here, he's banged up, like, super bad. <laughs> like, you know, he, he might have died anyway. He probably has a lot of internal injuries. Uh, his face has been mashed. He's lost the like, numerous teeth. His, his bone structure in his face is really disintegrating. And then he just gets dumped into the water. Like, it's brutal. It is. He looks like someone who's been slapped by a man in an iron suit. <laughs> yes, he does. The, the one downside of the issue, I would say, is that you have the interesting parts where you have... Tony and the Iron Man armor talking to each other and then, you know, kind of convincing Tony to give it a shot that they can be better together. But then you also have, you know, a lot of dialogue of, of just Romico talking about Tony and you have this conversation between Pepper and Happy and it, both of those just feel like they go on forever. But then the stuff with Iron Man is really compelling. It is. That there, yeah, there's an interesting sort of a double-page spread right in the middle of the issue where he does he tries to cover... Happy talking to Pepper and Romiko talking to her friend, and there's just the pages very dialogue heavy. But he covers a lot in just two pages. It does, but it is a wall of text. <laughs> like it I, really is. Yeah, it's, it, a, it's a lot. Like I, you know, I, I remember um, sometimes in uh, modern comics, like you'd have an issue by Bendis where you'd have just like a page of art and then just all the dialogue on the side. This feels like a lot more than that. It does. I, I was gonna make the same joke about Ben. Just this is here. Yeah, must look at this page. Oh, this is great. This is. <laughs> <laughs> so it ends again with a great cliffhanger. He's just murdered uh, Whiplash and flown away. And now, you know, what, what do you do next? So you have uh, issue twenty nine, uh, which again has a, a great cover with um, the modular armor. And I love the modular armor. So seeing that again was really cool. And then again, a great nine panel grid of the same narration that we're used to getting, but a sense of a big fight going on and things are really bad. And you have this opening two pages where you have the modular armor fighting the sentient armor. And it, it's awesome. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm biased. I, I just love this here. It is. I really like Aletha Martinez's art. I'd never heard of her before this book, and I noticed she's been doing a little bit of work for Marvel lately, but overall she doesn't have a huge resume full of books. But her stuff is... I like it. It's it's very kinetic, full of energy. I mean, um, and, and it's interesting, too. She did the prior issue half of it, but here she's proudly introduced as the new Iron Man art, uh, artist. And, yeah, it's there's just something about the way that she portrays these characters fighting that feels very visceral um, and, more, and, again, very action-packed. Um, and then we get the kind of the flashback to how it all got this way. And I, I just I love the interplay between Tony and his armor because, again, you're not dealing with an outright villain – you're getting Tony's just trying to reason with a machine and try to make him understand what it is to me be human, and obviously that's not easy. Exactly, that's the interplay I like. It's not hero versus villain. It's hero talking to 
AI that wants to be heroic but just doesn't quite understand all the ethics that go into that. Mm-hmm. And then again, we have more of the, the Tony and Romiko interplay. But this one, this again feels more earned where even if she knew he was Iron Man, it wouldn't have taken away from the menace of this moment where he's so scared of this armor that he needs to get rid of Romiko. And that means letting her go, even though he loves her. And even though she's, you know, just totally emptying her heart in front of him, he has to let her go because, you know, this, this, this machine that he just, you know, was inside of when it killed someone could do anything to protect itself. And he, he can't, he can't make any wrong moves. And it's really, it's, it's a scary moment when the armor even shows up. You know, he's trying to talk to her, and the armor is just in this weird shadow, and just kind of showing up, and it just freaks the hell out of Tony, because not only is it there, but it has, you know, it's mastered his, his speech pattern, like it knows how he talks, and that's extremely intimidating. It is, and I think it's, it's one of these classic superhero moments where the, the hero has to be mean to someone, or mislead or lie to them in order to protect them, and of course they... They're going to suffer for those lies. They feel like they have to do it because they can't let this person be hurt. But, you know, it happens to Spider-Man all the time in his life. True. But I just felt like here it almost felt more earned because there was an immediate danger. Like, it wasn't just like, well, I got to go be Spider-Man over there. But it's more like, you know, you might die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which feels, again, a lot more intimate, a lot more immediate. And a lot like you can kind of understand why the character would make that decision, as opposed to with Spider-Man. Sometimes you roll your eyes and go, "Really, guy? Like maybe you could do a little bit better." But here it's like, "No, you're honestly, you know, afraid she's gonna she's gonna die. You have to do something about this." Uh-huh. And then, like, I'm actually surprised. Like again, then he goes on, you know, kind of a, a journey to kind of say, "This is what's going on." I'm you know, trying to threaten this guy. I forget his name. Um, Mr. Donahue, and even I'm surprised he even brings the armor with him because the last scene made it seem like he was so, you know, kind of almost terrified that the armor was around and what to do with him, and then he just kind of goes on a mission with him. Well, I think it was probably uh, the armor kind of forces him along. You know, the armor says we have unfinished business elsewhere. True. So I don't know if it was a optional trip at all for either of them. Uh, I also like the idea that uh, the armor wouldn't know that it was running low in energy. And so, like, he <laughs> taps out for a moment, and he's like, whoa, that's great. <laughs> like, it's, it's a very funny moment. Does this confrontation they have before that ever come back into the book? I don't think it comes back up in this particular volume I have. Um, Which part? The part where he, he confronts the guy in his conference room. I think it does later. Okay. I, I have to admit, I can't remember right now, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it does. It's one of those things, one of those kind of ongoing plot threads. I do like uh, Happy and Pepper kind of uh, getting back together for a moment. I like that too. It's but just, it's not as good as, it's, it's not as good as on the next page, which is the Iron Man armor doing the Ben Grimm thing of putting on a hat and a trench coat to hide yourself. <laughs> See, no one notices in the Marvel Universe. First of all, funerals are always dark and rainy. No one's going to turn around and look at you, and in bright red armor under a trench coat works. Apparently, that's, that's, that's a unique thing of the 616 universe. Once you have a trench coat and a hat on, that's all anyone can notice. Whatever's underneath will be hidden. And I, I do I do love how that scene is colored. How, how, you know, for the most part, the only character who really has any color is Iron Man. Like Everyone else is very drab colors and dark, and he just kind of stands out. And again, it's Tony trying to kind of have the armor understand what it means that, that he took a life and what it means that this child is now orphaned and has no father anymore and what that means and how, 
and uh, even is maybe the most villainous moment that the armor has in the entire book where the Iron Man armor isn't going to talk to him and just says, take me back to the lab now before I kill everyone here. Like, that's pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, the armor is just so angry about the situation. I don't, I didn't consider the threat a legitimate threat, but more just a, I'm furious because I've learned something and I don't like what I've learned. Here's a question, though. Couldn't it just fly away then? <laughs> Like, take me back to the lab. <laughs> now, um, in the next page, we have, you know, he kind of powers down to uh, get... And then while he's powering up um, and jacked in, we have a brief moment where Jocasta takes control and immediately says, you know, hatch bay 12 now. He runs and gets the modular armor, which, again, as a fan of the armor, I love. And then the um, the sending armor comes, and it's almost like finding someone with, a, with a, an ex-girlfriend. Uh, the way he's like, how dare you take it off? Like, it's actually a pretty interesting moment of, of course the armor would feel this reaction. Like, it feels earned that this, this armor wants to be one with Tony, wants to fulfill its function. So seeing Tony in an older, you know, uh, not, ex, you know not as advanced version of the armor would be very upsetting. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. It's, it's the ex-girlfriend thing. Of, we're, we're, we're partners. We're a team now. How could you cheat on me with this other armor? Mm-hmm. And then... I guess it's um, not on those immediate two pages, but I guess the next page after that, where you just have the the kind of the silhouette of iron of the ascending armor just ripping pieces off the armor. Like before, you know what's actually happening or what's actually going to happen to Tony's body. That's brutal. Because so. I mean, and, and again, if you t- kind of take it to to be that kind of that crazy ex girlfriend or that you know, that ex girlfriend kind of idea, it almost looks like you know he's he's killed that other armor, like he's ripped it apart, like it's like it's pieces, like I've destroyed this other thing that you loved, which is again that's a brutal message to send. And you have that brief moment where Tony like you know kicks the armor, tries to run away, tries to get his Avengers communicator, you know gets his you know hands stepped on by the armor, and again the armor if it slaps you could kill you, so stepping on you can't be good. And then, uh, you know, it's just like, why would you need to call the Avengers when you have one right here? And again, extremely intimidating. The art is so on point on really uh, delivering delivering this idea of menace, that this is a scary, scary thing. Like, that you believe it's a threat. Like, if the coloring wasn't quite as good here, as the, if the shading wasn't quite on, as on point, maybe it wouldn't have been able to achieve that. But as is, it really drives home that message of, you need to be scared of this. It does. That that bottom of that last page of this issue where you have him saying where you like you said with why you need to call the Avengers, that panel, the inking on that and the coloring really sells that this thing is scary if it's standing over you threatening you. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting too because it's kind of the um you know, how Iron Man could be a lot more dangerous if you let himself be, almost like Spider Man, like Spider Man's always holding himself back, but when he doesn't he's actually scary. Uh, like when someone else takes over his mind and you see how bad that is. This is kind of that version of that for Iron Man, where you have the armor, all the power of the armor without the humanity of the man. And now this is how scary it could be. It is. And then he drops them off on the island and says, we're going to learn to be together. And that's where we end off. And then we uh, we'll go to Iron Man 30, which, again, I love the cover. Because uh, you have a, a you know a bruised and bandaged uh, Tony and just this scary armor just ready to unload upon him. Mm-hmm. Now he, this is interesting. So still the nine panel grid, still the same narration. What I like about it, um, so you have you know the armor talking to Iron Man, threatening him, and you have his you know his blaster right up against his head and making it look like he's going to shoot his head off in a classic kind of. Uh, whenever I see any character like this, I I do think of Wolverine now. 
because Wolverine is the classic kind of impaled on something in comics, at least not in life. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I like that they have that shot. And then on the next page, you know, they deliberately make it look like he shot him and then blasted his head off, which is, uh, you know, a, a cool fake out. Cause you're pretty sure that's not what's happening, but you know, just in case. Yeah, but it's setting up the stakes, too, that this is a very, very dangerous situation. Um, but it does, it invokes the Wolverine, the famous Wolverine cover, where he's been crucified on the X. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. And we get some more Ramiko in here, because she's, she's, she's thrown uh, Tony's photo, and she still has it, and she's wondering what's going on. And I do like that, again, in this issue, again, she seems a little bit smart. Like, she knows something's wrong with Tony, but just needs to know what it is. And she feels a little bit less... I don't know, bipolar like she was in the last issue. She seems a little bit more put together. Yeah, she's... the when Her internal monologue is very rational, and she's thinking carefully, you know, there's... She's realized something else is going on here I don't quite understand, and I want to understand it, and she's not... It's not flighty whatsoever. Now, I have a question. When, when the armor blasted Tony... What exactly did it do? Because when we do finally see Tony's face, there's, like, smoke everywhere. But, like, he obviously wasn't hit by it. <laughs> did it singe part of his yeah, hair? It's... Like, it's kind of unclear if it did anything or what happened. <laughs> Maybe he, the armor was just simply blasting, you know, right to the left or right at his face just to simply scare him. That's, I guess, the best I can guess. <laughs> Um, I do like that that Iron Man takes. Oh, sorry, Iron Man. The armor does take off for an Avengers distress call. So it's still kind of, you know, very committed to the bit, committed to being Iron Man, and it does allow Tony the moment to kind of uh, finally get off uh, or get out of where he is. Although, is it just me or does does lightning actually strike? <laughs> like it just seems like like it does, but it just feels like really that's going to happen. Like there's nothing. Really, besides him being on one of the highest points in the area, I don't really get why this would help him get free or how he would know it would happen and that he'd be able to twist just enough to get off. But whatever, uh, it's comics. I'll buy it, I guess. Yeah, it feels like a a contrivance done because they've got 15 pages to wrap this thing up. Yeah, and like Tony deciding he has to, you know, hunt animals. And of course it's a cute animal. Come on, guys. But I do like that, you know, he starts, it's one of those classic, you know, he's fighting something stronger, but he's going to go to ground, he's going to make everything himself, he has he has the time to prepare, so even if he's at a technological disadvantage, if he prepares hard and uses his brains, he can still beat the armors. It's one of those classic hero type things that I think works really well here. I'm surprised it took him two days to decide I have to hunt for food. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's, he's, it could be about 30 minutes. Well, and it's interesting too, because like, I guess... It's interesting that they let it be this long before he's done anything. Like, if he had realized this and then started to fashion, you know, a, a plan, you'd think it would happen a little bit earlier because it's been a, it's a long time for the armor to not be around. Because the armor has nothing to do but be Iron Man. You know, like, so it's not like the, like the armor really doesn't have a lot on its schedule. Uh, so it just feels like the longer that you put him on the island, yes, it makes a little bit more sense for him to have time to do things, but it also makes it harder to believe why the armor hasn't come back yet. So I don't think they did this in the Avengers book. It would have been pretty cool if they tied it in and actually had like you know some Avengers issue where this armor does show up and everyone's like, why is Tony acting so weird? Yeah, but, I'm trying to remember. I don't think it did. Um, yeah, but that would have been pretty cool if they had. 
Um, I, I do like the, the flashback moments with Tony where, you know, he's remembering, you know, training with Steve and, you know, not, not giving up and all the things that Kennedy's learned. And that was pretty cool. And then, like, seeing him, you know, with a bow and arrow uh, that he's fashioned, put together, him, you know, being able to get food was actually pretty badass. Like, I feel like if this was in modern comics, this probably would have been its entire issue of just him figuring this out on his own. Uh, it's kind of build up more of that tension, but it still works in this way to kind of boil him down to his kind of his essence and then rebuild him. It's kind of green arrow ish, but I mean, it works. Yeah. I think it's always, it's always a fun thing to do in the books is take the brilliant hero and put them in a situation where they don't have all the normal tools, but then to establish that, you know, he's not a hero because he has his armor. He's smart and resourceful even without it. Mm-hmm. And and we get to see that with him, you know, putting all the traps together so that he can try and, you know, take Iron Man out. And it, you know, you obviously have to have a little bit of, you know, disbelief, uh, suspension of disbelief, because maybe he shouldn't do this well. But I like the idea that, you know, he's had some time, he's put together a, a plan, he knows kind of how the armor would probably do things, which is interesting, because I guess the armor is basically based on him, and what he kind of programmed into it as well. So it's interesting to see how that's kind of developed. Hmm. And in the end, too, he... The armor beats him, the armor just chooses to save Tony over himself, which I think it makes sense. In the end, no matter how good he was, he's not going to beat the armor he made. Mm-hmm. The only problem I had at the ending of the issue is that I felt like in in the arc it came up already, but in the issue it felt very like, oh, he's had heart issues? Like, he's been alone on this island for at least three days. You know, um, he's had a lot to deal with. Maybe he would have had a heart attack already? Yeah, you would think when you didn't eat for two days and had been out on a desert island getting exposure. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, and, and, no. <laughs> and, or that he would have had a heart attack when the armor put him there. Like, just considering that, you know, not that long ago he had his first heart attack and all the situations he's been put in, the uh, horrible amount of stress for everything he's been dealing with, it just seems interesting that it's only after he's able to plan an entire battle and have it go about that he finally has a heart attack. And it is interesting how the armor then, you know, decides to save him, but also kind of changes his life in a big way. Although, you know, kind of, I don't know if it gets retcon per se, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't have that anymore. And they've done a lot of other things with his heart. But um, it's it's a very kind of interesting and compelling ending. It's a little, it is. It's good. Huh? It's a little easy, but I like it. And I, again, I like how um, Joe kind of ends this storyline with having another nine panel grid. Uh, of having Tony kind of, again, remembering about his life and then having that great last page of, you know, just him on the island and the Iron Man armor just sitting there. Um, has he already called for help at that point? Oh, yeah, he has. He has a signal alert. I was like, yes, oh, how's yep. he getting out of here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good symmetry to have that same dialogue, the same nine-panel grid. Maybe the whole story arc here could have been served by one more issue because it does get a little bit rushed at the end, but also it doesn't doesn't overstay its welcome at any point. And I was, for this first arc, I was really surprised how much I liked it. I didn't know with Joe Quesada writing, where he's, I mean, he's a very creative person, a great artist, but I wasn't sure with him being this new at this point to writing the book, not drawing, whether it'd be high quality. So I was very surprised how good it was. One thing I, I just realized and I forgot is that it's interesting. So, this issue, this part five of the story, uh, it was by Sean Chen. So I guess Aletha Martinez was on half a book and then a full issue, and she was welcomed as the new regular penciler, and then they had Sean Chen finish anyway. Yep. 
Which is kind of weird, but then they do have a nice little thank Sean at the end. I would imagine their original intention was to have Sean draw the entire thing, and maybe halfway through they realized it's just it's not going to happen. It's just interesting because you would have almost expected like him to do as much as he could, and then someone else would have finished off the arc, not you know him take half issue off or a full issue and a half off, and then come back. But I do like that they you know kind of gave him a good ending. I guess maybe they wanted him to end with the arc. Um, his art is absolutely fantastic in this issue. I love the shots of uh, Tony and, again, him with the bow and arrow. Like, it's, it's just something about the way he pencils things that is so compelling. And it's so dynamic, and I really like it. And even that just last page, it's so simple, but, it's again, it's very effective because it's really it's calming but also sad. It's, you know, it's a breath of fresh air, but also, again, this, this moment of mourning. So it's very compelling. It is, it's, his art is... Excellent. Um, one thing I noticed um, throughout this entire arc was that all of the editor's boxes keep joking about how Joe Quesada hates editor's boxes, which is funny considering that once he became editor-in-chief, he more or less killed them across the entire line. Oh, yeah. That's right. I didn't doubt that. That's very true. All right. We got a few more issues here. So we got issue 31, which is uh, uh, Martinez is again back and... I feel like it's a little bit more mar- like of her style this time than even the past issues were. Like I felt like it was almost like she was trying to do a little bit of Sean Chen, and now this feels more like her. Yeah, this is definitely... Like, you look at this, you don't think Sean Chen whatsoever. It's a completely different style. For sure. And again, I like how Jocasta continues to be utilized. Um, and again, we're seeing the aftermath of... You know, Tony having to deal with what happened. And uh, here, I guess, the story is written by Quesada and Thierry. Yeah, I think he brings Thierry on to help him script it. Was sort of, if I was betting, that's mostly what Thierry is doing here. Which, again, it makes more interesting that he showed up earlier uh, on the newspaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> future writer of this book. Then um, <laughs> some of these, again, I like, I'm, I'm wondering, too, when they were writing these issues... Um, how much description they were going with in the script. Um, because you have a lot of these kind of very intentional one-page um, kind of splashes. And here's another one in this part one of Sons of Yinsen where you have Tony kind of, you know, putting his hands to his head in, in shadow, obviously conveying a lot of you know, deep turmoil. And then you have this kind of interesting shot of his new heart uh, beating, which is, it's very interesting. Yeah, that is that, that, that page, the splash page they have there with all the credits very well put together. Now, one thing too is that with him, with um, Romico, how's he going to explain what's on his heart right now? <laughs> like, he's got this weird kind of device on there. How's he going to, you know, it looks a little difficult to get intimate, I would imagine. <laughs> well, you know, Tony Stark, he doesn't like to rush into things, so that's not really a problem for him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do like that when uh, when he opens up the armor bay and you have kind of the classic armor, um, a version of like kind of just before the sentient armor or basically looking like it, and you have the heroes are born armor, and then you have the kind of the uh, kind of the classic, I guess what seventies and eighties armor, and that's the one he's wearing. And I, I love seeing him in the classic armor. Yeah, I like seeing that, but I enjoyed too what you mentioned the heroes reborn armor with the vents. I know it's not objectively the best design, but it's a design that sticks out in my head just because I was the perfect age when I first saw it. Mm-hmm. And then we have, uh, you know, him confronting the Sons of Yensen and again going up against all their armors. And I like not only seeing that happen, but also seeing him dealing with it with an older armor where it's not quite as easy. And 
there's just something to that idea that, you know, um, and they've done this many times where they'll have Tony get used to a very high-tech armor, and then he, for whatever story reason, he has to go back to something a little bit more retro, and it's always a little bit harder for him because he's getting used to all the you know bells and whistles. It's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm using my, you know, my iPad Air, and I'm suddenly going to go back to the original iPad. Like, that's a, a harsh transition. Yeah, I think one of the best examples of that was from Matt Fraction's run where he had, I forget, I forget what the arc was called. It was a 12-issue arc where he was slowly moving backwards through time in terms of armors until he got back to the very original gray armor. That's right, yeah. That was a good one. Because he had to destroy them all. Exactly. He was wiping his mind just to save everything from the Registration Act and, you know, fights of Osborn. Those are other good Iron Man comic books. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you think of uh, the introduction of the Sons of the Ensign here? So I like the concept. I thought it was well done. But it's one of those funny things, too, where, you know, 30 years into Iron Man's existence, you think, how did this never come up before now? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, they, they kind of try to explain that, though, right? Mm-hmm. They, yeah, they were sort of a secret society. Yeah, and, like, the, the issues are fun, and it's the idea that, you know, that Wong Chu is still alive. I'm trying to think what, like, how long after this certain things happened, because, um... The, the Sons of Yinsen end up kind of, and they kind of, it gets played up in the last page of this in, the entire volume. The idea that uh, the Sons of Yinsen's kind of uh, city ends up near the sentient armor, that's not an accident. Yeah, I think it's, I know it does come up later on. I, I had to Google that because I was like, what's going on here? Is there more to this story? And I saw that later on it does. Yeah, it, it, and so like, look, reading back at this, it does feel kind of oddly incomplete because it definitely foreshadows something but doesn't give you anything about it. What do you think about the the use yeah. of of Wong Chu? Uh, I thought it was interesting. I I wish he was drawn more consistently through this story arc with artists switching off. I guess it's hard, but I like the idea that you know the explosion happens, he survived, but he's very disfigured. Um, I thought it worked well. I don't see any reason why this guy being dead adds anything to Iron Man's origin. So him being alive is fine with me. Yeah, I don't think it really has to mean a lot. It's interesting too that you know this feels very foreign now because they with the sliding time scale, like it's very much a Middle Eastern conflict that's supposed to be now. Whereas this was back when it was still very clearly, you know, not. That's a good point. That's yeah. That's once Warren Ellis comes on, they sort of shift that forward in time where this story really doesn't work in the same way. No, I mean it makes sense. I mean, if again, if we're reading this, this is 18 years ago. I mean, it just it, it can't work. Like there's only certain characters where you can still kind of use their those original formative years and everything else gets really problematic and for the most part they've solved it by just having it be a kind of a, a nameless Middle Eastern conflict and uh yeah. yeah so, so reading it now definitely feels a little bit weird and jarring. The Punisher has the same problem, where at this point, the Punisher really couldn't have been part of the Vietnam conflict, just because he would be way too old to still be the Punisher. Oh, for, for sure. And they sometimes they kind of just kind of vaguely kind of, you know, put some lipstick on that and say, well, you know, it's a different conflict. But the only problem with that is that, you know, those conflicts are very specific. Like, the Punisher being formed from Vietnam made sense. Like, that was a very specific type of conflict that would breed a certain type of person coming back from in a way that other wars haven't been as depicted as quite to the same degree. I agree. That one, it's, I think it's much easier to move Iron Man, because Iron, you basically just, 
it, it works and it's not conflict specific. Like you said, Punisher's is very works best in this particular kind of conflict. Iron Man, you basically pick any conflict in a foreign country. It still plays out the same way. It still works. What do you think of this? So I'm just kind of running through these issues because to be honest, like a lot happens, but also not a lot at the same time. Um, what do you think of the um, the annual here, which has the artwork, artwork by Dan Panosian and Paul Ryan? So again, two very different artists from each other and from Martinez. Uh, so I thought it, it told the story well enough. I mean, it's it's not great that you have these artists changing out. Like throughout this entire arc, you have multiple artists, and they're all drawing the same characters and pretty different ways but in terms of storytelling in terms of communication in terms of each artist doing a good job given their style i thought it was fine yeah i felt that panosian's style was probably the most like martinez's so i thought that that was less of a, of a kind of a jarring switch but once you had ryan take on uh the book it definitely felt more classic but it didn't feel like stylistically it was the best mixing of artists yeah it's Especially when it's you have not, when you have Wong Chu in the in the armor, it looks really strange. Yeah, it's uh, Wong Chu is, has the biggest problem with the consistent portrayal. Each artist has their way they want to draw them. It doesn't seem like they're referencing any consistent material on it. They all have this. They all have the general idea that he's a fat, scarred guy. But <laughs> you know, one will draw him as this enormous monster. The next guy will draw him as a relatively small guy. It's just wildly inconsistent. Mm-hmm. It's interesting too because, like, obviously, you know, these issues are put together because it's kind of it's it's showing an, a full arc uh, or at least two smaller arcs that Quesada did. But yeah, like the the last three issues just feel so different. Um, but like he's he's trying something, but it doesn't quite fit. It doesn't. Um, and and it's, it's, one- it's more apparent as a collection because if you're just reading it as singles, you know, it, I think things age and feel differently when you're, you know, 30 days away from the next issue and then you kind of forget about some things and it just kind of feels different. But when you're sitting down and reading a collected format, it, it's even more apparent that even though it's the same writer, that, you know, very different stories and they're picking up on some threads but also trying to very different things. And as to your point before, you know, you got three issues and you have three different artists all told. You know, that's a lot of inconsistency or, or just some change when prior to that you had a pretty consistent visual tone. Yeah, I think you're right. You throw a 30-day lag in between all these issues and some of these things probably aren't nearly as glaring. I always try to remind myself that, that of just how different things are when you read monthly comics. Like, there's such a different, you know, kind of tenor to it, especially back in the day. Like, that's why I think the... Um, all the issues of the actual sentient armor story work so well is because they had such compelling cliffhangers. Um, where I would say that the last three issues don't really have the same strength. No, it's not. It's not a well as well constructed. It's a decent story, but it doesn't have the same quality of plotting issue to issue that the first arc had. It's interesting, too, that both uh, part one and part two of the storyline basically end on the same cliffhanger. One of them is, Wong Tu's alive, and the next one, Yinsen's alive. <laughs> like, it, it, it feels it like does. that's kind of the, the more hackneyed kind of cliffhanger, and they go to it twice. Well, that's why they shit into the third one with, Uncle Ben's alive. <laughs> now, it's interesting looking back the as one well. Thing that- oh, sorry, go ahead. I would say the most stunning thing in here, the most surprise I've been reading comic books in a long time, 
was the fact Dr. Midas shows up in this annual. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because outside of, I knew he was in Marvel Boy, and I, I loved him there in Marvel Boy. And as far as I knew, from, until Original Sin, he appears in nothing. To see him pop up here, I, that was the most stunned I've been reading comic books in a very, very long time. <laughs> I love that character, and to see him like you know show up, and that he's made this deal years ago with Jensen, where he gets Jensen's brain after Jensen's dead, and he's traveling through time, and I turn everything to my advantage. It's, <laughs> it's great. It's interesting. So I was looking. So you were right before. So like, yeah, it's weird that they didn't collect the next three issues that uh, Quesada writes. Um, yeah, we just figure yeah. in a volume that's by Joe Quesada. Why not finish it off? Yeah, it is. A, I mean, I guess I'm just trying to remember because it's been a long time since I've read the stories. But like, I'm trying to remember the storylines that you know, he was writing and I remember it, it was kind of a weird period. Cause again, he was wearing the old armor. Um, I guess there was what a three part arc that he wrote and then he was gone and he wrote it with Frank Thierry. You had artwork by Martinez and Paul Ryan. And I guess the last chapter of it was also a crossover with maximum security. So I guess if you, That's end, what I was say. If you end a book like that, like, that might be confusing, but it is strange to position it as Joe Quesada, you know, sorry, Iron Man by Joe Quesada, and then not actually include all those issues. Um, I guess it's really because they wanted to show the Ascending Armor storyline and then threw in the Sons of Ensign just for fun. Uh, as I said, I think they could have just called this, you know, uh, the Ascending Armor saga or something and just kind of released it like that. But, uh, you know, you get a little bit of extra electric content here and it's not bad content it's just kind of interesting that this is what they chose to include and they didn't want to include the next three issues which are just as kind of oddly kind of thrown in as these ones yeah i think the trouble is now you know i enjoyed this and i like to keep on reading but i don't see them issuing another volume which would be three issues of casada and then some chuck dixon issues i just have no idea how you market these issues subsequent to the omnibus in this volume so i can't see that being released anytime soon yeah me either i mean and that's kind of like the benefit of something like the epic collections where you don't have to think about it you know it's going to come because you're eventually going to get them up to a certain period and uh with with you know kind of the i guess let's call it the quesada period forward you don't really get that like you don't think you're going to get that for a lot of those books and you end up with a lot of lot of kind of weird holes and if you want to know what happens between avengers disassembled iron man and and uh and this like it's very difficult like you have to i don't even know if there were ever any trades let alone out of print ones yeah as far as i know i don't think there's any trades it might be available on marvel unlimited but it's very i guess it's hard to market that era without something like the epic collection where you're just saying we're doing everything so you're going to pick each of them up because um, there's no there's no name to grasp on there. There's no big story art people are referencing. No. It's, so without something like an epic collection, it's just sort of going to well, never be collected. I guess after Iron Man 50, I feel like you could call it the, the Mike Growl collection, but I don't know if that really means anything to anyone anymore. Like, Mike Growl was a big name in comics at one time, but these days, like, when was the last time we saw a Mike Growl comic? Yeah, I can't imagine a Mike Growl Iron Man moving big volume. No, like at least like I can see that, you know, by Joe Quesada, yeah. I mean, and that's probably why they called it the volume that. But again, as we've said a bunch of times now, why call it the Iron Man by Joe Quesada if you don't include all of it? True, although I, I will say recently, you know, I've 
there's been certain thing times I've bought comics instead of the trades because I've thought to myself, they'll never ever collect this. <laughs> so recently, I bought the full run of Mutant X. I don't think it's great comics, but I wanted to have it, and I said they'll never collect Mutant X. <laughs> and then on the new releases, I saw come up late in the year, they're releasing Mutant X. I'm super excited um, about that, but I agree with you. It was yeah. one of those. That is one of those titles. Although looking at it, it's kind of ripe for a complete collection because it's totally self-contained. Yep, two volumes, you're done, and, and you know. I mean, it's, but like, where's the marketing hook? You know, it, it's Havoc's not a big character. Howard Mackey is not a big name writer anymore. No, but there it is. <laughs> I guess it's I don't know. I'm name, glad to see it's out, but yeah, unless they know something we don't know about Havoc. Possibly, it's not impossible. I mean, I mean the character. Okay, another character that I was surprised they're finally doing a complete collection for, but I'm very happy about it was Spider Girl. Like that, that character's been around 20 years, and finally they're deciding we're going to go back and reprint it. And I'm super excited about that because my big, one of my biggest regrets as a comic book reader is that you know I jumped off after issue 50, and then because I was in you know in university, didn't have as much money, and I didn't think I could afford to buy it. And I was like, I enjoy it, but maybe I don't enjoy it as much as the other books. And when I look back on it now, all I want is to have a complete volume of Spider Girl, and I'm never probably never going to have it because I just don't. I, I don't buy as many singles anymore, and I don't know if I'd actually go and read them all, but I'd like to believe I would. And, but if they're going to give me these complete collections, it's finally giving me this ability to have them on my bookshelf, and I'm really excited about it. I agree. I hope they continue on with those Spider-Girl volumes, because I looked at that series in the past, and we looked at trying to collect it before these new volumes are doing. It was just it wasn't worth the cost and effort to try to do, even if it was really good comics. But with these, hopefully they get all the volumes out and you can just have some yourself volumes one through six, these big fat trades everyone likes and bam, there's the entire series. Well, it's especially- good creators, a good character. Oh yeah. Amazing creators. Pat Olive does some great work and then Ron friends does some amazing work later on. And Tom DeFalco has a ball with it. But what I also find interesting about it as well is that you have, um, uh, this will be the first time that this has been in, I guess, the proper trade format because it was in Digest before. Correct, yeah. Like, you, you didn't even get to see this beautiful artwork at its proper, well, you know, pro- regular size, I should say. Instead, you had to see it in this kind of weird shrunken down size, which, and there are some comics that come out these days that I'm like, I wish they would do Digest versions as a companion or as, like, another option. But it's always interesting that that was the only version of getting those books. It is. It's, it's not ideal for me. I'm always on the side of give me the biggest, fanciest version you can. You know, if there's an absolute of, of something, I want the absolute. If there's an omnibus, I want the omnibus. So a digest is the exact opposite of what I'm going for. If that's something I can get, I'll take it, but it's True. my last preference. I think it was, it, was, it, was, it was kind of ideal for the, well, definitely for the Spider-Girl audience. They obviously wanted a, a little bit of a younger audience that the digest would kind of work for. I think uh, for years... The only way I could get the um, what was it the Spider Man and Human Torch I'm with Stupid uh, miniseries the only way you could get it was in the in the digest for like the longest time and then which I think I, I think someone took it from here I don't I don't think I have that anymore <laughs> now that I think about it that's very sad um, I, think so. I feel like someone borrowed it and never gave it back uh, but then eventually they put it in like a I think a, a st- like a, a large hardcover at some point and I was really excited because I love that and now it's actually coming out in a trade paperback format because they're doing a I guess the the thing in Human Torch by Dan Slott uh, complete collection because he's now the new FF writer. So they're saying, well, he's written these characters before. Come read them here. Yeah, I think that one's that's an easy marketing hook. So yeah, a lot of these we can make sense of, but some of them are a stranger. 
Yeah, we, I just saw this week we're getting the those Bob Gale issues of Daredevil before Bendis. They're finally collecting those after 20 years as well. That blew my mind that it was finally happening. It was the only thing that I found weird about it is that Bendis's name is on it. So why not put in those few issues he did with uh, what Leapfrog or whatever? Like, why not just include yep. those? Like, what else did he write? Daredevil Ninja in there? Like, just include these other issues. Make it so I can get rid of my old trades, please. <laughs> I just I wish there was some way they could make that trade dress the same as my other Daredevil trades, though, because I would like to have them all in order. But you can't stick that in between the other numbered volumes. As, no. You know, an anal retentive comic book fan that could never be allowed. No. Well, although I'm trying to, I'm trying to think too, because like you have Guardian Devil that in various different trade formats and trade dresses that it's been through all of them in the last twenty years. Uh, then you have parts of a whole, uh, and then I guess you have the Le- I guess then you have the Leapfrog one, um, and no- I guess none of those are numbered. I don't think. Uh, so I, I think some of the volumes. So I, my Guardian Devil is numbered. My um, really? the Leapfrog one is called Wake Up, and that's numbered. Oh, and then and then the fourth one I have is that's the first Bendis run. So the Gale would be volume three point five. Oh my god, that's ridiculous. See, I I gotta admit, I, I I have the underboss trade somewhere, and then I think around once that that trade was over is when I started buying singles of Daredevil. Um, so I don't have any of those other trades. So I do, so I bought the um, complete collections when they released those. So I have the three volumes of Bendis. The only weird thing about those as well is that you don't have the Echo story because it wasn't by Bendis. So there's an Echo story what fifty one to fifty five, which is just kind of orphaned unless you had the original trade way back when. So I had trouble finding that trade for so long, and then I was at a convention in Chicago a lot of years ago and bought it straight, straight from David Mack. No way! <laughs> I had to buy it from the guy who did it to finally get myself a copy. That's a, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's one of my few signed volumes. I was like, oh yeah, I'm buying it from you. He just had them at his table? Yeah, like, I hadn't seen him one in forever, and I just walked by. I was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> that's awesome. So he signed it for you? Yep. Oh, that's cool. Well, that 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 makes it all worth it then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it paid off in the end. So I don't know what we're going to chat about next time. We we talk about a comic because uh, you know we, we've kind of come to the natural conclusion of our Iron Man. Well, we've got a lot in this era now in Omnibus. Thankfully, now we've got we've got the two Avengers Omnibuses from this era. We'll have two Thor Omnibuses soon. Yeah, I was shocked Captain when they America announced Omnibus is out. When they announced that uh, that the, the new Thor Omnibus uh, collecting the rest of the heroes return, I was really shocked and surprised. And it looks like it's going to be the largest thing in the world. Oh, it's enormous! I think it goes through issue eighty-five or something like that. Yeah, like I, I thank God they made the uh, the pages thinner because I don't know how else you'd be able to do this. Like it's, I feel like it has to be thirteen hundred pages plus. Yeah, it's going to be enormous, but it'll be great to have that, because that'll give you the entire post-Heroes Reborn, pre-JMS Thor, and just two big books. Yeah, which uh, I didn't buy the first one, and uh, now I'm thinking I kind of have to. <laughs> yeah, I, I do that sometimes. I'll, I'll, I'll put off getting Volume 1 until I see Volume 2 finally get announced, and I rush to buy Volume 1. <laughs> 
I think I'm just more excited by the content in, in Volume 2 because Volume 1's good and it has some, you know, very typical JRJR artwork of the time. But it's just something about Chapter, uh, sorry, I guess this, this second omnibus where it feels like it really dives into, does a bit more of a deep dive into a bigger story that Jurgens is telling and it's, it's a lot more epic in scope and it feels more like he has a better idea of what he wants to do with it and really goes somewhere with it. And, and he really kind of challenges what Thor stories had been up until that point. Whereas uh, in the first one, I feel like you don't really get that. It's a little bit more of the kind of the standard, the typical, you got the, you know, the Jake Olson, all that stuff. Like it didn't quite feel as big, but they are. Yeah, I'm big. looking forward to reading it. They are I haven't read giant. anything in volume two yet. So, Oh, well, I um, guess that's our next one then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's this whole era. It's, it's the, everything post heroes reborn, pre sort of the new Marvel era when Quesada gets in charge. I don't have a great grasp on typically that's an era where I really wasn't reading much and was just kind of out of it for a few years. So I'm always going back and trying to catch up on that. So there's a lot of good stuff happening at that point. Oh, for sure. No, I'm guessing. So have you already had a chance to read the, uh, the Busick, uh, Perez, uh, Avengers? I'm working my way through it. I think I'm about 10 issues in right now. So I've, I've got both omnibuses. I picked them up pretty cheap off eBay during a sale, but, um, haven't got too far into them yet. I like it a lot. The good, the, the writing, of course, is great, and the art's great. So, for sure, well, it's hard to. Uh, it's not surprising that with those two guys working on it, that it's a great book. True. Well, you know, I I, I almost put it in, in your hands. You can say, hey, if you want to do Thor, if you want to do Avengers, whichever one you want, we'll uh, we'll tackle. It sounds good. I'm looking forward to doing it because like reading this stuff, and I really like talking about it. So. Excellent. Uh, well, again, th- thank you so much for uh, for joining. To uh, we actually, I think we almost spent as much time on this what six or seven issues than we did on the the previous twenty five. I was surprised. I figured, uh, you know, this book is a fourth of the length. This will take thirty forty five minutes. I th- I thought that myself, and but and it's interesting too. Most of it was just talking about the first what four issues or five issues, and then it really was that first arc. The Sons of Yinsen got maybe a good ten minutes in there. Yeah, I think that's 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 the proper split in terms of discussion. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, and I, I do give credit Joe Quesada a lot of credit because um, the storyline with the Sending Armor was a compelling one, and there's a reason why they've you know collected it years later. That you know people still like that story. There's something that really speaks to you know Iron Man's character when you have. You know, the, the futurist, the man of technology confronted with an actual AI. As we said, it's a little weird because he has dealt with AIs and synthesoids in the past. But again, there's something more intimate when it's his own armor kind of not necessarily directly turning against him at the beginning, but, you know, becoming its own thing and him being a master of being in control. And suddenly he's not. Yeah, and I, I think it, the, the quality of it really is surprising. You might think with when you hear the, the one line pitch, when you hear who wrote it, Maybe it's not so great, but it really is high quality. For sure. And it's one of those those highlights of the kind of the late 90s, early 2000s period. Mm-hmm. It's and, right before, I guess it was right before he took over as editor-in-chief. So this is, you know, right before everything starts changing. Yeah. And as you said, it's interesting that they have narrative boxes and kind of telling you where things are happening, considering he makes all those go away. Yep. Yeah, the, even the, the editor in the editor box is like, I know Joe hates this, but check out this issue. <laughs> it's interesting too. Like uh, again, it was back when there uh, in a bunch of these issues where um, 
they would, uh, and they always do this in Marvel books, where instead of saying, you know, who's doing the story or art, they'll give them other titles. And so even in, um, I guess, the is it the annual, uh, where they describe Bob Harris as being the Mandarin? <laughs> yeah, they, they would always take the editor-in-chief and give them the most interesting title. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, especially in that one, because everyone else has their regular titles except for him. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, everyone else's letter, inks, art, the Mandarin. It's an interesting choice. Yeah. Well, it's interesting with the guy who's writing it would shortly take the guy's job. Yeah. Well, and again, the issue before that had Bob Harris took out all the dirty words. Mm-hmm. So they're definitely having fun there. Although I guess in issue uh, 31, again, they had, you know, radiology was by Joe Quesada and Frank Thierry, surgery by Aletha Martinez, anesthesiology by Rob Hunter, transfusions by Steve Olive, prescriptions by RS uh, and Comicraft, uh, EMS by Bobby Chase, and, uh, and DOA, Bob Harris. Yeah, that's just, that's an affectation you don't see in the books anymore. I feel like the, at this point, the credits are so formalized that each person, you know, Fair enough, everyone wants the credit for the things they've done, and I understand that, but the sense of fun isn't always is there as much in books like this. Um, no. Maybe in the more comedic books they might do it, but I don't think if you think of a modern issue of Iron Man, you would ever see credits like this today. Not really. Well, especially because often when you have the recap page, they'll just put it on there. Mm-hmm. So there's no really, not really a place for it in the same way. Like even in, uh, let's see, the uh, the part five of Blood Brothers, you had Joe Quesada was the eulogy, Sean Chen is the gravedigger, Rob Hunter is the pallbearer, Steve Olive with flowers, R.S. and C.C.'s Troy Pateri with invitations, Bobby Chase is mortician, and Bob Harris knows that no one stays dead in comics, so he didn't come. <laughs> like, I, yeah, see, they... <laughs> not today. I, I'm very curious, too, who even, like, who would come up with those? Like, was it, like, the letterer? Like, who kind of came up with the idea for what they would say in the credits? That I've always been curious about. That is a good question. I can't imagine the writer sitting at home even, you know... I, I, I'm betting it's the editor, but it could I could definitely be wrong. It's just my random guest having mm-hmm. no real inside knowledge of anything, so <laughs> probably not worth too much. <laughs> even, even the first issue, when it introduced the... Joe Quesada as the new writer it says, uh, and introducing new scribe and a man who isn't afraid to call into all his favors to get a gig, Joe Quesada. Yeah. <laughs> and Bob Harris there was tightening the screws. Mm-hmm. Seems about right. All right, well, well, we'll we'll sign off, Tim. But thank you so much for joining us again, and we'll uh, make sure that it doesn't take uh, quite as long to get you back on the show to record another episode. That sounds good. You know, if you just all these Steve Englehart's just keep getting in the way of getting me <laughs> on the podcast. So. Yeah, yeah, he likes to talk, and I like to let him. So. <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll catch you next time. Thank you so much. All right, thank you for having me on. All right.